Geopolitics and Empire is joined once again by lawyer, professor, and prolific author Dan Kovalik. Last time we discussed his book, The Plot to Attack Iran. This time we'll be talking about his most recent work, Cancel This Book, The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture. How are things, Dan? And have you been canceled yet? Things are good. Uh, knock on wood, I haven't been canceled yet. Uh, at least not that I know of. <laughs> So I'm, I'm, I am stealing myself for that, but so far, so good. All right, then it will keep up the, the good fight. Um, you know, I'm glad someone from the left, such as yourself, wrote this book. You know, thank you for writing it. Uh, I feel that it balances the, the equation uh, in some ways. And I would consider you to be a true, honest, authentic uh, leftist, the kind that someone who is, you know, not left can dialogue with. Uh, I felt that conservatives have been bearing the brunt of cancel culture more often than not being the ones to be deplatformed from the virtual and physical space. Although I think you may disagree and you'll tell us more. Nevertheless, progressives have been feeling the pain of cancel culture when speaking out on issues that go against the establishment, whether on war or other topics. Yet nobody should be canceled, right? Cancel culture, cancel culture is anti-American against the ideas of liberty, freedom, and democracy, and uh, such tactics unnecessarily ruin lives. You cite... Uh, one of your professors in your book concluding that, quote, speech that offends but does not interfere with another's right of participation should not be banned or otherwise suppressed, uh, end quote. You use an example of a little old lady, a peace activist who got canceled for sharing a factual mem meme of Martin Luther King on social media. And, you know, I was raised in America with the strong idea that anyone can say absolutely anything, even stupid, insulting, racist things, as long as nobody is calling for violence. So, you know, why is it important for us to be able to speak freely? Well, I think it's more important than ever to be able to speak freely because we're confronting a lot, you know, um, profound crises in this country and in the world that we need to be able to talk about so that we can find solutions. If you cannot have an honest debate or discussion about things like the lockdown, about things like climate change, about things related to race and gender, then you can't find honest solutions. Um, and, and I see this time and again, and I find it quite disturbing. Again, the, the one that really does come to mind is how the lockdown was treated. If you were on kind of the left of the political spectrum, you would be very much um, attacked if you were critical at all of the lockdowns. You were considered an, uh, an anti-vaxxer, uh, a granny killer, right? And then, of course, on the right, uh, you know, if you at all supported the lockdowns, you might be attacked there. But again, since I'm on the left, I know what happened there. Um, most of my friends on Facebook are you know, on the left of the spectrum. And again, I saw uh, just how self-righteous people were about the lockdowns, about staying at home and um, wearing masks. Um, and what bothered me about that is it showed a tone deafness about what was happening with the lockdowns. As we know now, we're over a year into the pandemic. What we've seen is that the lockdowns worked in such a way that the rich gained trillions of dollars in wealth and, and the poor lost trillions of dollars in wealth, right? 
what else do you need to know to understand that the lockdowns were not good for people? Again, I'm not saying there shouldn't have been some sort of lockdown in response to this, but it was not done in a way that favored or that protected working people. And in fact, it was the most privileged people who could stay at home, who could work at home, on their computers, safely at home. Uh, You know, that is not a privilege many people have. And to, again, uh, cancel others because they questioned uh, how all this was proceeding, not only was it wrong, but again, it prevented maybe better solutions from being found. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, we, we see the example of Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's a Democrat, uh, a left, and they're just attacking him uh, like crazy because he, he's making arguments that are based on, on reason with facts and science. And I've interviewed a bunch of leftists like uh, the political satirist uh, C.J. Hopkins, who's from the left. And oh, yeah, like, like yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, he's making good criticisms. You know, I wanted to get your thoughts on some of the blind spots that both the right and the left uh, have you write in your book quote that liberals are as capable of generating and clinging to fake news as the right wing is liberals have also shown themselves as willing to deny science and facts as much as the right end quote uh, i personally have dismissed for example QAnon uh, as an intelligence operation but some well-intentioned folks on the right uh, you know believe it uh, you bring up the false russiagate theory you know that some on the left uh, hold to it seems that even though the allegations of a putin trump conspiracy are demonstrably false liberals cling to it because it serves their ideological struggle uh, against the right to advance political goals and i'm sure that you know the right does the same as well with other examples you know why are some uh not able to carefully evaluate and dismiss you know some false ideas such as you know russia gate well that's a great question i mean uh there's a lot of reasons for that part of it is how our partisan political system works that people you have two choices, effectively. I mean, there are some third parties, but they're, you know, let's face it, not particularly relevant. So you have two parties you can pick from. The truth is they are not that different from each other when it comes to core issues like war and peace, uh, like, you know, protecting the wealthy, etc. I mean, they're two capitalist pro-war parties, in my view. And so people align themselves with the two parties largely at this point based on cultural issues. And so those become the dividing line and the line of, of uh, demarcation and of, of struggle, the line of struggle. And so basically um, each side has its own myths that it clings to um, in order to, I, I suppose the, in the way that some, well, all religions have their own myths that are clung to in order to essentially maintain loyalty to the faith. And a lot of these are kind of faith-based, even if they're secular. Uh, and so let's give some examples of, of, of this. So you mentioned Russiagate, which is still believed by most liberals, as far as I can tell, certainly by the prevailing liberal media. And the belief was that somehow Russia significantly interfered in the 2016 elections to throw the election towards Trump. There's no evidence of this. Even the allegations, even if they're all believed, 
they're weak. I mean, the idea is that someone in Russia hacked a DNC computer and gave information to WikiLeaks, which showed that Hillary Clinton um, maneuvered to unfairly um, take the primary election away from Bernie Sanders. That's that. That is the allegation. First of all, there's no evidence Russia did it. In fact, CrowdStrike has now admitted that the only entity that apparently has has really done a forensic exam of the computer. But even if they had done it, I don't think this is what led people to vote for or against Trump. In fact, what and as I wrote in my first book, uh, The Plot to Scapegoat Russia, what I remember very vividly at the time was that the thing that really killed Hillary was the letter uh, that Comey wrote a few weeks before the election saying he was still investigating her, uh, you know, private email use because of emails found um, on the computer of, um, and I'm forgetting his name. In any case, this was what really hurt her in the 11th hour, not the emails regarding uh, Bernie Sanders. And, and that's the main allegation. Like, that is the hardest allegation they have. The other ones are, oh, there was, you know, a very small amount of Twitter and Facebook posts that actually didn't favor one candidate or another, but raised cultural issues. And there is, as one person said, it, it was, uh, Russia Gate was a scandal without any real allegations, even. And yet people cling to it, right? And then when Trump and others around him, um, you know, raised questions about the 2020 elections, which, frankly, I believe those, you know, issues raised were not serious ones, were not verified ones. The liberals got all upset. How dare you question our elections when when they spent four years questioning the election, right? Because of Russiagate. And then, of course, even before that, you had Trump himself who questioned uh, Obama's right to be president, uh, you know, based on the birther allegation that he wasn't really born in the U.S. So we see both parties doing this um, and then getting upset when it's used against them. Right. And and so, again, it, it is this almost religiosity that these groups have Um in clinging to their myths. Now you ask how this has happened. And I read a good article yesterday, I think it was. Um, and I've seen this argument made several times and, and a number of people are tracing this phenomenon of, of, of essentially alternative facts, believing in alternative facts, meaning not facts at all. They trace it back to postmodernism, the postmodernist movement of the 60s and 70s, which did, at least some strains of it, did promote an idea that there is no true reality and that really what we think is reality and facts are mere perception and your perception may be different than mine. Now, that's not a new idea. I mean, the the philosophers have, have, have questioned that issue back and forth for millennia. But as this uh, author mentioned yesterday in this article, you know, like the Greeks who, who all talked about this, Plato, for example, 
they'd have arguments about this, but then they'd go back home to Athens and they basically accepted that there was reality, right? I mean, they, they, now we have a situation in which people really, uh, I think have decided there is no reality, that it's your feelings about the facts are as important as my feelings. When in fact, your feelings and my feelings about the facts don't matter at all. You know, the facts are what they are. So this is where we're at. We, you have both conservatives and liberals uh, who have decided that reality doesn't matter. And of course, so you had this postmodernist movement and, and, and this way of thinking, which I think, and, and I, I'm sure more will be written about this. Maybe I'll write about it. Um, I think this has been accelerated by mass media and the internet, right? Because people now live in a virtual world most of the time. Most people are online all the time, many times playing video games, watching movies, watching TV shows. That is to say most people spend a significant time in their waking life not in reality. And I have to believe that that contributes to all this, that essentially you can, you know, you can be led to believe anything. Mm -hmm. and, and the social media, of course, also does this because most people are friends on social media with people who agree with them. And so they can create this perfectly hermetically sealed re world in which you're just, you know, uh, agreeing with each other. When that happens, of course, bad ideas can be reinforced. And that gets to your first question, and it gets, I think, to the whole issue of cancel culture. We need people who disagree with each other to converse, to debate, to find truth in the pursuit of truth. Yeah, that was my next question. You, I mean, you kind of touched on that. You mentioned it in your book uh, as well, that you, you said that you find conservatives in some cases more open minded than liberals that, you know, that was kind of shocking. And I think I, it was recently that the New York Times uh, reported on a study showing how Democrats are twice more likely to live in echo chambers and be politically isolated uh, than the Republicans. You know, what, what are your thoughts on the difference between the left and right in terms of open mindedness? Yeah, well, I agree with that, you know, and I quoted Chomsky, Noam Chomsky, who said that the only guy who gave him any space in the mainstream media was William F. Buckley Jr. on his show Crossfire. And so that was his experience, too. My experience with my books, which up to this book on cancel culture, have been decidedly left wing, right? Um, I found that I got as much or more traction on conservative talk shows than I did on liberal talk shows. Like, for example, one would, might think Democracy Now!, which is a progressive news outlet, might have had me on to talk about one of my anti-war books. Never. We've tried. They never had me on, right? Meanwhile, Joe Piscopo has had me on his conservative show out of New York City and New Jersey. Um, I've had others. Uh, I've been on uh, the show Liquid Lunch, and I forget who runs that, but it's pretty ultra right, actually. Um, but they're actually open to having people on to discuss things. And of course, I give the example in my book of Tucker Carlson, who the left hates 
And yeah, there's a lot of things about him from a left-wing perspective to dislike, but he's the one guy that will have people on who I know, some of my friends, Dakota Lilly, Anya Parampil, who question U.S. policy towards Venezuela and towards Iran. They, they don't get on CNN. They don't get on MSNBC, and they never will. Um, and, and we're seeing this happen more and more where the kind of liberal media is becoming more and more sealed off not only to just conservative views, but to other progressive views. Glenn Greenwald, I heard an interview with him recently. You know, he's the uh, uh, author who just left The Intercept. He said he used to be a staple on democracy now. He, he thought he, he believed, in fact, he was the uh, guest that had the most appearances ever on democracy now. He's a regular guest. But in recent years, he doesn't get on at all. They never invite him. Yeah, I think um, this is kind of re related to another point uh, you, you make uh, in your book, kind of this wedding uh, between this woke cancel culture movement and kind of the corp corporations, right? You know, the, the corporate um, establishment, inclu which includes the media and academia. Uh, speaking of religion, you mentioned, you know, religion. You talk about the hijacking of Black Lives Matter and it kind of becoming religious uh, in nature where... You know, they, they're asking white protesters to, to purify uh, themselves. I think you went to some of the protests. And, you know, this woke religion, uh, as it has become, is a departure from the true civil disobedience and protest movements that you yourself have been participating in all of your life. And wokeist cancel culture shuns the fallen and doesn't want to, you know, educate. To, they just want to obliterate uh, the other person with there's no room for redemption. Uh, and you compare it to a new McCarthyism. You know, could you elaborate on you know, the, the religious nature of the movement and how it differs from the historical civil rights uh, movement? Yeah, I mean, if you looked at the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s, um, you had, of course, it was led by African-Americans, which it should have been, uh, by people like Martin Luther King. Um, by people like uh, A. Philip Randolph, who, which is a name that's been largely forgotten, but he was a very important labor leader and civil rights leader. Um, and they, you know, their goal was pretty simple. It was to destroy Jim Crow, where, you know, you had separate facilities for, for whites and blacks, um, you know, separate schools for whites and blacks, um, uh, this was a horrible injustice, obviously, and and their goal was to to destroy segregation and to pave a way for African Americans to get the full benefit of of our economy, of for lack of a better word, the American dream. Right? Uh, this was a very concrete goal that they had, and they worked with a lot of white people uh, <laughs> to do that. A lot of white people, a lot of Jewish people, actually, in particular, went down to the South and protested at diners and, 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 and uh, in voting rights struggles. Um, and I, I, you know, I don't want to be Pollyannish about it or naive. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't um, uh, a perfect marriage there or a perfect relationship. But I think it was, you know, those folks were pretty accepted in, in, in terms of that. Now the movement, its goals are much more amorphous. 
certainly it focuses on police violence, which is a serious problem, and that has to be addressed. And I, you know, again, I marched with Black Lives Matter this summer uh, against police violence, and I'm all for that struggle. I, I you know, uh, but a lot of it was, you know, kind of strange because, again, ultimately the message was garbled a lot of the times um, where, you know, again, the most specific demand was defund the police, which no one supports. Okay. And I point that out in my book, African-Americans don't support it by a large majority. They don't support it and every other group less. Okay. So the, these protests were saying defund the police and no one believes in that. Right. It turned off a lot of people. But if you questioned it, if you challenged the slogan defund the police, like, do you really mean you want to just get rid of the police? And they'd say, well, that's not really what we mean. And you're reading into it. It's like, no. You know, can I tell you something? If you have a political slogan that you need to explain to people what it means, it's a terrible slogan. Right. And that was it. Right. And that was uh, that's what was being offered to people. And so it was self-defeating in many ways. Um, but you couldn't challenge that. Again, if you challenge the defund the police slogan, you were seen as racist, right? Um, if you questioned uh, some of the tactics that were being used, some of the violence that was associated with, with some of the protests, which, by the way, as I pointed out in my book, was, were largely being carried out by young white men on the left and the right. Um, if you question that, you were canceled. And I mentioned Molly Rush in the book, the peace activist in Pittsburgh, who was canceled for doing just that. For through this meme, raising the question of, is it good that, you know, there's riots and looting and violence that are being perpetrated? Again, not at, not at all. And in fact, it, not at most of the demonstrations, but at some. Is this a good tactic? And she was canceled before that because of that. She was actually the group that she co-founded 50 years ago, Peace and Justice Group, the Thomas Merton Center, publicly denounced her in an open letter and said that they would no longer work with her. The group she helped to found, right? Because she questioned what everyone should have been questioning. Are these tactics working, right? And... As I also talk about in the book, again, and I'm not the only one who, who felt this. I said others who saw this. I mean, a lot of the demonstrations, unlike all the other demonstrations I've been into in my life, okay, which focus on saying like, okay, government, stop making war. Government, um, stop uh, uh, or government, please give us Medicare for all. Government, please give us more support, whatever, all of it being aimed at the state or companies, these demonstrations tended to be more aimed, truthfully, towards the protesters themselves, right? So you found yourself going to a protest, and a lot of it was about how white people who were there, because there weren't any uh, uh, bystanders for the most part, because it was a pandemic going on and it was hotter than heck. Um, it was about how we protesters come together and purify ourselves. And people had signs, you know, white people do the work. It's like, well, I guess I'm doing the work. I'm here. Like, what is this about? 
right? And it felt like a religious revival in that way, which again, focuses a lot on individual sin. But the difference is at a revival meeting or at a church function, while there's a lot of focus on sin, there's more focus on, okay, you've sinned now. You're good. How are you going to be forgiven and how are you going to be redeemed? But as you mentioned in your question, there's not a, a lot of forgiveness or redemption being offered to people. It's the strangest religion I've ever seen, right? Where uh, you're seen as having original sin. That's not a new idea. Many religions have, have that notion. Um, but every religion has the notion that you can be redeemed from that. Uh, but I, I think in terms of this religion, it doesn't seem you can be. If you're white, by definition, you're a racist. You can work at it. You can become a little less racist. But in the end, you're still going to be racist. Um, you will not enter the pearly gates of whatever. Because they don't even have heaven, right? I mean, there's, a, there's no heaven being offered. There's no redemption being offered. You can just be a little less worse than your neighbor. Right. And, and then so that's what plays in the counterculture. So how do I show I'm a little less worse than my neighbor? Yeah, I, 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 you know, go ahead. I, yeah, I was just trying to run that exercise. If anyone ever dared to try to cancel me, I, I tried. I ran through that exercise in my head because I have three citizenships. Right. At first glance, they'd say I'm, I'm an American. I'm, I'm a white American. Right. But wait a minute. I'm also Mexican. You know, I'm a Mexican citizen. So by your own logic now, because I'm, I'm Mexican. I can't be canceled because I'm a minority, right? But okay, wait, but wait, there's more. I'm also ethnically a Croat, a Slav. Some people say that the word Slav came from slave, right? My right. grandfather. I'm a Slav too. So right. I, yeah. So my grandfather had been a Nazi prisoner for a brief while. And, you know, the white Aryan supremacists considered us the Slavs as, you know, inferior and would exterminate us uh, as well. So it's like, you know, there, there's no logic to this, as you say. It's just, it's just. I don't know where, where it ends. Um, and in your book, there, there's something else you mentioned that's interesting. You say uh, you cite Adolf Reed, uh, quote, "Anti-racism may end up being used for the same purposes as racism was in the 20th century to divide the working class in ways that undermine its ability to fight corporate and state power." End quote. He also states. Quote, the marriage of the CIA and the military industrial complex as well with portions of the liberal and left movements as well with woke culture is quite profound and has greatly distorted what uh, passes for progressive in this country. End quote. And this kind of reminds me of something the NBA great Charles Barkley recently said. He said, quote, our system is set up where our politicians, whether they are Republicans or Democrats, are designed to make us not like each other so they can keep their grasp of money and power. They divide and conquer, end quote. So, I mean, we're kind of seeing uh, this sector of the left, um, you know, coming together with these corporations. They're getting corporate sponsorship. The One of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter is buying, you know, multiple properties and moving into white, mostly white neighborhoods. And, you know, could you speak to this this part of the left that's the cancel culture left that's coming together with the corporate establishment. Yeah. Well, and again, this has been, been cultivated for many years. Uh, and again, I, people might be surprised may say, Oh, the guy's a conspiracy theorist, but you know, you have someone like Gloria Steinem who has admitted she was a CIA agent and that one of her jobs was to try to convince, you know, uh, the radical movement, the feminist movement to, to, 
to be anti-communist. I mean, th this is not anything new. The CIA supported uh, liberal left uh, journals like the Paris Review, for example, because it saw in this that you could divide the left and undermine it by, um, by one, again, uh, cultivating anti-communism or anti-socialism within uh, progressive movements, uh, but also by dividing uh, the left among racial lines and gender lines, um, when in fact the whole goal of being a leftist, of being a Marxist certainly, is to unite the working class regardless of race, regardless of gender. The whole idea is the one thing we may have in common, we may be black, we may be white, we may be a woman, we may be a man, we may be gay, we may be straight. But the one thing we are are workers. We have to sell our labor to live. And because of that one thing, which, by the way, is almost all of us, right? The Occupy movement of 2012 said the 99% versus the 1%. Um, that means we all have a lot in common and could work together for a greater good and should. That is a Marxist view. That is a, a leftist view. But what has happened in recent years is many on the left don't want to work with everyone in the 99%. In fact, they don't want to work with about half of them. They've decided, in the words of Hillary Clinton, that they're deplorables because they're they because allegedly they're all racist or if they're not racist they're not anti-racist enough and so uh, what this has done of course is weaken the left um because it's more about shunning people and finding differences with others and casting them aside than in bringing people in to the movement, which is how a movement survives and, and, and flourishes. And you, as you say, the bizarre part of it is, is that the corporations like Amazon and Target and Uber have openly draped themselves in the mantle of wokeness. So has the CIA. Have you seen the new CIA recruitment video? Everyone's seen it. It's like a woke word salad, right? Well, they all have decided that this wokeness is benefiting them, right? I mean, obvious, this is obviously true because they see this as a way to, again, divide and conquer um, the people, not just the people. It's a way to keep people at each other's throats. And it works to the benefit of the people who already own half the wealth of this country, the 1%. So truthfully, it's a brilliant plan and it's working swimmingly. Yeah, there was, a, I mean, just to add to that, in your book, you mentioned, um, well, I'll call it the, the FBI false flag uh, angle. Uh, you know, last week, I think it was in Seattle, there was a, a video of an Antifa, as they call it, black block protester shouting, I, I can't wait until black people lynch uh, white people, but we know governments around the world infiltrate movements left uh, and right to subvert them. Uh, you mentioned in your book the possibility of you know the recent of left uh, protests being infiltrated. I remember just uh, from the past few months, uh, weeks, uh, news articles that revealed that 
so one of the leaders of the conservative group Proud Boys was a former FBI informant, uh, a member of the conservative group Oath Keepers, was also approached by the FBI. Uh, I previously interviewed Trevor Aronson, who wrote the book on how virtually every single so-called domestic terror threat since 9-11 involved undercover FBI agents and informants. So it seems, you know, we're behind creating these non-existent domestic terror threats in order to justify the growing police state. So, you know, just your quick thought on, you know, this, this sub subversion of left and right groups uh, from within by the government. Yeah, well, and this, again, this is nothing new. We know that the, there was control parole uh, uh, in the 60s and 70s to undermine the peace movement, to undermine the Black Panthers. And again, many times it involved the FBI infiltrating a group. They've done that with environmental groups too. Pushing them to do a violent act, even getting them bombs and guns and whatnot, and then arresting them when they carry it out or try to carry it out. And in fact, as I mentioned in the book, when I was a young activist, the maxim I was taught was whoever has the guns or says they can get the guns is the cop. He's the infiltrator, right? And you're right. When you look at it, 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 it there, there's been whole articles and books written about this, how the FBI has pushed groups into to at least planning for violence. And then when they, again, move to do it, they're arrested. And, and it, it, there's a huge question, would these groups have naturally done this on their own? And we know that the Proud Boys and other right-wing groups have infiltrated these Black Lives Matter protests. In fact, the, the police precinct in Minneapolis that was uh, set ablaze, there were some Proud Boys arrested for doing that. Um, and again, a lot have connections with, with uh, you know, the police state. So um, the point being is you see the state actively trying to provoke violence by one group against another. And if that happens, if, you know, and they're happy to see white anarchists, and again, yeah, it, it mostly is these white, black, black anarchists that are doing this, in the streets fighting with white, young, white, proud boys, the system survives. This is the best thing could happen, right? You just kill each other, right? And you're, you're not going after Jeff Bezos. You're not going after Elon Musk, who, SNL, who's made a career bashing Trump for the last six years or whatever, had Elon Musk on the other night to host the show. That, that doesn't that tell you something, you know? SNL is a very liberally oriented show. Can we agree on that? I mean, um, they decide to have Elon Musk as a host. Why? Because there's no contradiction for them to do that. Those people are embraced, the super billionaires. Meanwhile, uh, they condemn uh, the white working class. This works out great. Elon Musk is happy. He's on SNL. He's making money. And people, uh, workers are fighting workers in the street. Yeah, I, I grew up enjoying uh, SNL, but they've lo long since lost their edge, you know, anti-establishment. Uh, you've said you feel the left is experiencing more deplatforming, uh, although I feel that conservatives have borne the brunt of deplatforming. We've seen, you know, so-called conservative President Trump deplatformed, and I keep seeing a steady stream of 
mostly conservatives being deplatformed from banking services, apps such as Uber, Airbnb, and social media. Uh, what are your thoughts on the big tech deplatforming of those on the left and the right and the, the consequences of being digitally disappeared? Because now people are having their bank accounts closed. I mean, it's getting even to the point difficult to be able to participate in society. Yeah, well, and there is this concern that people have raised with this, you know, the coming cashless society that will make it even easier to do that. Because you can always hide your cash under your mattress. That's always been the way to, you know, survive in tough times. But if cash is gotten rid of and we all just have digital money, it'd be easy to, you know, essentially bankrupt someone. But in terms of the social media, I mean, again, what I see, uh, I often see people who advocate for Palestinians, including Palestinians themselves, being tossed off or suspended from social media. Um, I often see um, people who are gender critical, uh, people who have some questions about the trans movement and the philosophy behind it being canceled even though they're, you know, again, progressives, leftists. Um, and at least the study I, I've seen is that the left tends to be canceled more by the, by the big social media pages um, than the right. But it's on particular issues. I mean, in general, they, they tacked liberal. But if you move outside a certain liberal dogma, you can be deplatformed is the point. For example, people who are critical of the U.S. role in Syria are deplatformed, right? Um, again, these are leftists who, who say that the U.S. has been supporting ISIS, for example, in Syria, which is true. Um, you're in trouble if you say that sort of thing. You can, you can get deplatformed. In fact, you saw that Matt Taibbi, and Katie Halpert were fired from Rolling Stone over the Syria issue. So, and the point is, if you support that type of censorship, which liberals seem to be, it's going to come back on you, right? If I don't, it's always been the view of people who care about free speech. It's always been the maxim that I may disagree with you, but I'll fight like hell for your right to say it, right? And that's the spirit we need in this country, because it, the idea certainly is it's due unto others, because if I don't do that for you, you won't do that to me. We're both going to lose out, right? Yeah, I wanted to talk about solutions. I, too, had problems you know, myself as a conservative uh, where I used to teach at university and, and high school. I've, I had students uh, and parents go after me, try to cancel me, you know, send letters to the higher ups say, calling me anti-American conspiracy theorists because I was teaching in history that the U.S. was arming and financing ISIS uh, in Syria, which is, is, is documented, you know, and, and uh, you know, in the end, it turned out that was true. But at the time, people just, just can't uh, believe that. And just to talk again about solutions you write in your book, quote, when I announced to my family that I was going to write this book, my oldest son, Joe, smiled and said, well, be careful. The surest way to be canceled is to write something critical of cancel culture, uh, end quote. I personally feel that the biggest problem is that so many people are passive, indifferent, and afraid. Uh, and so few individuals are valiant enough to get up and stand up and, you know, come hell or high water and, and speak out. And you, uh, you feel the same way. I think uh, that you yourself, um, you would not be true to yourself if you did not articulate your ideas. And the only way to challenge cancel culture is, is to speak up. So what are 
going forward now some solutions for us for, for people um, to be doing? Yes. Well, and, and I agree. You took the words right out of my mouth. I mean, I think the main way to can, can counter cancel culture is one to be brave enough to speak your mind and to be willing to endure some flack for doing that. Now, of course, some people or a lot of people are in vulnerable positions where that's hard because they could lose their job. Um, but I think so what that also means is, as you say, the main thing that allows cancel culture to be effective is silence. It's the silence of those on the sidelines who see someone getting piled on wrongly, even a friend, and they're too afraid to defend that person because they're afraid they'll be canceled. Again, I saw that with Molly Rush, uh, my peace activist friend who, yes, there were some who came to her defense, but not enough. Very few people, and I know the vast majority of people who witnessed what was happening didn't support what was happening, but they didn't want to end up like her. So they stayed silent. So that is something people can do is to not stay silent. You know, you got to stand up for your friends, um, especially if what they're being accused of is is nothing right, or very little. Um, and if people did that, it would destroy cancel culture. It, it, it depends on the vast majority of people staying silent. And this gets back to the whole thing about free speech and the belief that, again, informs the First Amendment, informs, uh, you know, those of us who care about the Constitution and Bill rights, that the only way to counter bad speech is by speech, by good speech, right? Speech has to be voiced in order to overcome this. And I think that is my main message. And I think one more thing that you mentioned in your book about common uh, ground, you mentioned, uh, quote, George Orwell had some good things to say uh, about this danger. I note here that I am not a huge fan of Orwell the person, as it is well documented that he was an anti-communist snitch who ratted people out to the CIA. But notwithstanding this fact, I have not canceled him uh, from my life. I acknowledge that even though he may have been a fink and a hypocrite, he had many important things to say about society and the human condition. Do you see how that works? Uh, end quote. And I feel exactly the same way. You know, I have I have Marxist friends, libertarian friends, Muslim Jewish friends, and it's like. You can kind of separate the ideas that you you disagree with from them from the person uh, themselves and, and respect that person still. And and today we're seeing this like we have all these people. Oh, you believe this? You know, get out of my life. Get get out of my face. And I, I feel that a key point of your book is this finding this common ground and coming together. No, absolutely. And again, um, it recognizes first of all that none of us are perfect, and that that's the bizarre part about cancel culture. It's like it is the old you know, uh, line in the gospel when Jesus says, you know, you have not sinned, cast the first stone. I mean, that has to be accepted. Like, none of us are flawless. And so um, to reject someone because they have flaws um, really is not, it's contrary to being, to me, a decent person, right? And, and, what you're also talking about is the need to separate the art from the artist, right? The work from the author, which most of us have all been able to do, right? Um, everyone has foibles. 
uh, that doesn't mean that what they produce isn't great. In fact, one of the things that most of us marvel at is how someone who is so flawed could create something so beautiful, right? You look at Edgar Allan Poe, who, you know, is the master of the horror genre. You know, he married his 13-year-old cousin. He hasn't been canceled yet. He was also, you know, a drunk who died of drunkenness, <laughs> you know, but that's what makes you say, God, it's incredible how the guy could write. Um, I was talking to someone who uh, works with the Gene Siskel Center for Film. You might remember Gene Siskel, great film critic, the uh, Siskel and Ebert show, right. which I, I grew up on. They will no longer show films by Woody Allen, by Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, there was a third, and now I'm forgetting. But in any case, because those people, again, in their personal lives, uh, were flawed. And again, where does that end? What films are we going to be able to watch? Um, and the interesting thing, particularly with Hitchcock, well, and Woody Allen too, what about the poor people who were abused, at least allegedly by those people, and who were in their films, right? So uh, let's take Hitchcock. We, you know, I think it's well documented that Tib Tibby Hedren, is that her name, who was in The Birds, was very maltreated by her. And that's one of the bases for canceling Hitchcock, okay? Well, what about her? She suffered this abuse. Can you at least let her film be shown? You know, she endured the abuse to be in this film. Okay, so we're not going to show it anymore? Like, is that fair to her? Is it fair to Mia Farrow, who, again, alleges all this stuff against Woody Allen, and who's been in umpteen of his films to just say, we're not going to show Woody Allen? So that means you're not going to show Mia Farrow films. I mean, he, she also, of course, was in one of my favorite films of all time, um, Rosemary's Baby, which is a Roman Polanski film. Who He's being canceled, too. So you're not going to show Rosemary's Baby again. That means you're never going to see a Mia Farrow film. Is that fair to her? Like, there's other people involved in these things, too. And to cancel all them out seems quite unfair um, and just plain stupid, frankly. Well, I, I hope people listening, people everywhere start pushing back, creating friction, because if we keep going down this route, nothing's good. Nothing good is, is going to come. Um, you are on uh, Twitter. Uh, is there any website or, or other project besides the current book that we should know about? Yeah, well, I appreciate it. First of all, thanks for having me on. I have a podcast of my own called Voice the Voiceless. People can check out. It's on Facebook. It's on YouTube. It's on Spotify. Um, as you mentioned, I am on Twitter. And, you know, please get my new book, Cancel This Book. You can get it on Amazon and get it pretty much anywhere books are sold. If they don't have it, ask for them to order it. Yeah, I, I love your books. I haven't read all of them, but I mean, the series is great. You, you, Talk uh, against the, you know against the war on Iran. You wrote a book on on Russia Gate. Um, I think on Venezuela. I mean, there's so many, and the current one on, on the cancel culture. So they're all you know great, uh, high quality. I urge people to go uh, follow you on Twitter, uh, get your books, uh, and you know follow your lead in speaking out against this tyranny of of cancel culture. And thanks for being back on Geopolitics and Empire. Thank you. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast interview. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list through which you can receive an update of every new podcast, as well as a long list of key news headlines once a week. 
We're being heavily censored. YouTube has deleted some of our videos and we currently have one strike. Patreon has terminated our account. Facebook has restricted our page and Reddit has been the leading posts. Our favorite social media channels are Telegram and Twitter. The best places to watch the podcast beyond YouTube are on Odyssey, BitChute, and Brighteon. The best places to listen to the podcast are on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Google, or on any other podcast app. To help keep this podcast alive, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else. Subscribe to all our platforms and leave a donation if possible via Subscribestar, PayPal, Bitcoin, or Ethereum. You can also find us on MeWe, Minds, Gab, Float, VK, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.